Welcome to another episode of The Lanyard, the podcast that goes deep with change makers, business leaders, and community builders. Here's your host, Ben Hanton. Everybody, I'm on the road today recording a podcast at the Zeal Center for Entrepreneurship. You might remember a while back we did an episode with Brienne Maynard. She is now the executive director of Zeal, and she was kind enough to open up the building to me for me to record today's show. And on today's show, I have Lawrence Diggs, one of my oldest friends. And I shouldn't say oldest because that does, you know, that implies an age thing. But I've known you for a very long time. Thanks for making the trip to Sioux Falls today. Thank you for having me. Well, I can remember when we met. Do you have any idea when that was or how? Um, I can remember one of the earliest times was at the Vinegar Museum. Yes. Yeah, and we just sort of like was just getting to know each other. I actually cold called you. Um, I was working at my dad's shop in Webster, and somebody had given me the heads up that this guy in Roslyn, South Dakota, is doing interesting things. You should know him. And so I just called you up. And I think in the shop bay of my dad's business, we ended up having like an hour and a half phone call, which was yeah. one of the many extended phone uh, phone calls or conversations we've had over the years. The Vinegar Museum that you mentioned, I, I think that's an interesting idea. A lot of people know you as the Vinegar Man. Right, right. But I think before we get into vinegar, I'd like to figure out how you came to Roslyn, South Dakota. What is the population of Roslyn, by the way? Oh, let's see now. <clears throat> I think it's about uh, 180 or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. And you grew up where? San Francisco. And what was what was the plan growing up in San Francisco? What were you going to do with your life? Well, I actually had a lot of different plans. I did a lot of radio, but uh, mostly I wanted to just see the world. You know, that was my life's goal is I wanted to see all kinds of people and know different kind of people. I wanted to go to different places and learn what they were doing and feel them and feel what they were, you know, a world traveler. That was that was my goal. Yes. Now, how I did that, I wasn't sure because I didn't know how big the world was. So I had no, and how it worked or, you know, it was just curious to me. Or speaking the language, or yeah, just the yeah, basic what you currency. had to do, yeah, uh, you know. So it was, it was like this pipe dream, really, that I didn't know how I was going to do it. But you look on a map, and I lived in a place where there are people from all over the world living there, and it was always kind of a sense that I was missing something. I mean, I kind of traveled the world in San Francisco, too, because I hung out in the alleys in Chinatown. and Different neighborhoods. <clears throat> yeah, in the Mission District. And, you know, so, and I had friends and people that I knew and experiences right there in San Francisco. So I wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't completely unknown. But when you have, like, Russian restaurants, French restaurants, Chinese restaurants of all different flavors, uh, Japanese restaurants, and when you have all of those kind of uh, those uh, kids going to your school, and you have all of those kind of experiences. You want it just intrigues you, like what you know. What else is out there? Well, and you also had some careers in San Francisco that gave you exposure to a lot of different people. One of them was you worked as a paramedic. Yeah, I worked as a paramedic. That was like the career before getting into food science, but. 
it was a very interesting one because I, you know, traveled the world doing that. And I also got opportunities uh, that I never would have had had I not been doing that profession. And then going, and, and also if I'd done it just in the United States, I wouldn't have had those kind of experiences like, you know, being able to start an entire emergency medical center uh, system from scratch and to design equipment to go into your system and to uh, train all the people and all of that kind of thing. You know, you wouldn't probably get that experience just staying in, you know, if I would just stayed in San Francisco, maybe 80% of what I was doing was like picking up people who were inebriated and um, and we're going to be the inebriated every other day. Yeah, know? right. <laughs> <laughs> so there were, there were like people that you knew by name. Now you're talking about my business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, there are people that you knew by name and then when you brought them in, because you had to bring them in, because, you know, if you left them out, they got hypothermia and died, well, you'd feel bad, but you'd probably get fired too. But it was just a matter of, you know, if you brought them in, the doc would say, hey, look, you know, we know this guy, you know, you know, it was interesting and it was a humanitarian work, but I always thought, oh, there's, there's got to be some other system that handles this. Not, uh, this is not an emergent system. Uh huh. You know? Yeah. But the person just, hey, it's getting too cold. I must be sick. So I need to go in the hospital and get it, you know, and get checked over for three or four days yeah. <laughs> until it warms up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I follow that. You know, I mean, that's what I would do. Yeah. Cause uh, California, San Francisco is not, the Los Angeles, right? I mean, no, the temperature can get not. very cold there. And and I think it was W.C. Fields who said that the uh, coldest day I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco uh-huh. or something <laughs> like that. Because when the fog rolls in, I mean, people do die from hypothermia, right, in San Francisco. You know, yeah. we sometimes pick them up and they're corpses already. So the radio career, how did you get started in it? What was your first task in radio? When I graduated from high school, I went to a college uh, that's Golden Gate uh, University now, but it was called Golden Gate College then. And it was already then like a foremost business, one of the foremost business schools in the world. But I got into it not because I was interested in business, but because one of my mentors could call up somebody, make a phone call, and I was in. You know, they didn't ask me about my ACTs, CCAs, or anything else. Somebody vouched for you. Yeah, right. Just just show up. (laughs) But at any rate, one of my instructors there took us on a field trip to uh, ABC, which was right across the street from us, to just to show us how it was a creative writing class. And he took us on a field trip to just say, hey, you know, we got this thing right here, show you how it works on the inside. And the guy who was uh, the producer that gave us the tour was a guy named Agar Jakes. And Agar Jakes, uh, for this story, had uh, two important things. One, he was the head of the Democratic Party for California. So he was like, you know. Pretty important. Uh, he, yeah, he, he, was, he was a force. He was also the producer of the Smothers Brothers show. He gave us a tour, and uh, I thought it was interesting. And I said, well, how do you get to do a show like this? And he said, well, you just write up this uh, kind of your idea. We have these forms. You fill out these forms. Tell us what your idea is. And then if, you know, we put it before a committee, we're always looking for new ideas. And then what we'll do is if the committee thinks it's, yeah, it could be a thing, and let's see how it works out, they will invite you to do a pilot, and you'll do a pilot. And uh, if the pilot looks like it's something that we can air, we will put it on on a Sunday morning. 
morning or something like that and see how it looks actually on TV if we get any response, blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like a testing thing. And if it's anything, we'll give you 13 weeks, and 13 weeks could turn into 13 years depending on, you know, what the ratings are. It's all kind of works like that. So I said, give me one of those forms. <laughs> so at any rate, long story short, I got some of my old high school buddies together. We did this show. The thing I always remember about the show, I can't even remember really what we talked about because I don't know that it was like, you know, really that uh, coherent. But uh, it was the first time I was like ever on TV and I had no idea what I was doing. But the thing that I remember, growing up I didn't smoke, but then after I left home I started smoking. And the thing I can remember is you could hardly see me because I was smoke. We could smoke on set. There was so much smoke you yeah. could hardly see the the audience. That's how you get that great radio voice, right? Exactly. Every great Throat radio cancer. guy is sitting outside in between every break. They know the timing of the record, so then go out and have a quick smoke break. But yeah, it was, anyway, that was the beginning of my my career in broadcasting. But later in that semester the guy who was my who was the teacher of that class by the way he was the program director for KPFA which is like kind of a precursor precursors to NPR and he said you know you're wasting your time in college you should be in radio just go and get into radio the best advice i ever got because when i got out of radio I mean, got out of college. Did you just quit college? <clears throat> yeah, just quit. Yep. Not that day. Yep. You know, I finished that semester. But afterwards, that summer, I went to work as a YMCA, YWCA camp counselor. And there I uh, met a guy who was a member of this, um, we call it the 11th Avenue Circus. It was kind of like a commune of just like random college people young kids, you know, like 19 to 20, 22. And we all lived in this house. And it was like, it was like most people would pull out one of their teeth for this kind of thing. It's like people like the Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, and people, they hung out often at our house. Uh-huh. Bill Graham, Fillmore West. So, so in other words, by meeting this guy, being in this commune, that whole sister, it wasn't you know, we know it now as these guys are famous. At that time, they were just any garage band, you know, it's yes. just like some people. They weren't famous. We weren't famous. We were just like people hanging out. It was just getting started, all these BNs and stuff like that. So it was just in that milieu. It wasn't like it could have been Frank Zappa. Oh, yeah, it was Frank Zappa. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at any rate, I started getting into that. And then one day there was a guy who uh, had come back from – Europe, and his wife, he was estranged from his wife, but he his wife was Swedish, and he said, oh, you you know, he was started to talk about this great new thing happening called Radio Caroline, which was a pirate ship, it, well, it was a pirate station, it was a ship that uh, broadcast 100,000 watts clear channel, which you mean you could pick it up in New York or Moscow, but they broadcast from the middle of the North Sea. Well, not the middle, but in the international waters, because at that time, the British government felt that rock and roll was the devil's music. Yeah. They couldn't play it, in, and so and the kids wanted to hear this all this music that was happening other places. So these guys got this idea that they put, it was radio... Uh, Caroline, North and South, and Veronica, which was uh, three ships that I knew about. If there were more, I didn't know about them. But at any rate, 
it, it was these ships that were sitting out there, and you could, you know, they would play this rock music. And so he was talking about this, and I was thinking, oh, I should get into that. You know, I mean, that's that's my ticket out. You know, I can't, <laughs> because I had tried to get into radio in the States, and every person would say, well, you don't have any experience, so we can't give you a job. Of course, if you don't have a job, you can't get the experience. So, And there was no easy – it was no real easy path. Well, I was actually kind of creating one, but I didn't know it at that time. But at any rate, I went to one of the major rock stations, KFRC. The guy gave me a tour that was supposed to be one of the sort of like, you know, this kid wants to be in radio, but he, you know – but we'll be polite and get yeah. the tour. But I start asking every question that I could think of. All I wanted out of that was give me enough credibility so I can say that I that I was in radio. Oh, so so <laughs> not for that job, but so you could take it to another job, job. and you knew the I knew the, the lingo and everything <laughs> like that. Which is when this guy told me about it's this radio. Fake Caroline. it till you make it. Yeah, fake it even past you make it. <laughs> but but at any rate, by going there and saying you know like just talking like I was in radio uh, or had been in radio, they they said, okay, well, go and read this copy. They ripped some copy off the wire copy and said, okay, go read this copy and stuff like that. And next thing I know, I was on a ship going out to, to, to meet the ship. It was a tender that takes you out into the middle of the sea, and we just hung out there, and that's all there was to do on that ship was radio. So you had like two shifts you did your thing, and then the rest of the time you played pool and ate or whatever. Well, there was a movie about this a couple of years yes, ago. Now, yes, there yes. were also, like, boats full of women coming out to, to meet the disc jockeys. But, was but that you, true? It it only happened once while I was on the ship, <laughs> okay? but And people say, oh, no, that never happened, and people didn't do that. That was fake. That was not fake. And, I mean, it wasn't like it happened all the time, but... You know, let's put it this way: there were no there were no women disc jockeys on the air. There were no jobs really for women on the ship. But sometimes you have these women. I never got any, but <laughs> <laughs> but they were there for some other purpose, you know, other than to be on the radio. Yes, let's put it that way. And these ships would come up and just sort of like bring various things, including supplies and stuff like that, and then they would leave, and then they come back and pick up these girls. So, okay. Who was the rich financier making this all possible? How did, oh, how did, it, was, it was very uh, lucrative because, look, you got a 100,000-watt clear channel radio. Oh, so it's just sponsorship. Sponsorship. We yeah. had commercials, all, all kinds yeah. of commercials. It was just, just like an early top 40 station, but it was on a ship, and it was broadcasting all over the world. And, and then that business model ended when Britain finally decided that eh, rock isn't going to end the world. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> or we can't compete with this. Yes, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, at any rate, I think it would have ended sooner. But apparently, the guy who owned it and the guy who's a post and the postmaster general's wife, they had some kind of falling out, and he insulted her or slug, you know, punched her out or something. Anyway, it was like some kind of personal affair. Yeah. That. At least that's what I heard. You know? And it was over. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so they, they they never came to a reprochement or, you know, understanding. But at any rate, that was my stint. Now that I had the experience, when I came back, I ended up getting a job. But it turned out that what had happened, when I came back, I got this job at Youth for Service. It was a Quaker thing. My job was as we call a street worker. 
And the street worker was a person who went out and established relationship with various street gangs. And when there was any kind of altercation, then we went out and, and sort of like calmed everybody down. But in those days, they weren't like using Uzis. Yeah. <laughs> they were, yeah. It was just knife fights. Yeah, knife fights, ch- bicycle chains yeah. or something like that. And, you know, we were like some of the, uh, well, we were like, we were the guys who could just like wade in and say, hey, 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 hey chill out. Yeah. In fact, one of those guys that we work with, he ended up being the chief of police in San Francisco. Probably pretty good experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. So, but at any rate, it was, uh, but while I was doing that, they were, some people came down and did an interview about inner cities and stuff like that. And they ended up, you know, it was during the civil rights era, and people say, well, people were saying, well, you don't have representation on your radio station and blah, 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 blah. And they said, well, we can't find any people who have experience. Hey. Hey. We, <laughs> we know a guy that has experience. <laughs> and he, and he, he uh, checks the boxes for diversity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he checked all <laughs> of the boxes. And, and he actually has experience. And I think they were so surprised that they said, okay, you're in. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah whatever. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and it was a very good experience. They, you know, I got the training that I needed there. It, was my t- it became my ticket out because I – they, when they hired me, they said, look, before you decide what you want to do, what we want you to do is spend about six weeks or so, you know, while, because it's going to take a while before you had to be a union member after to work at the station. So they said, okay, it's going to take a while before all your union stuff goes through. So what we want you to do is, like, you can just, like, do different jobs. Pick a job and just go hang out with those people for a week or two and then, you know, and we'll give you a, a cover job. We'll start you in the mail room, and that'll give you a raison d'etre so you can go around to everybody. You'll have a reason why you're going around to all the departments. Sure. You get to know everybody, what they do. Then you pick a department that you want to, like, try out for a while, and then you will move you around until you're – if you decide – when you decide what you want to do, then you tell us, and then we'll, we'll train you. For you that. had a lot of freedom to navigate. Exactly. Incredible. Exactly. And – then, so finally, I was going to do the, the disc jockey thing, but I saw how fi- fast those guys got fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, was it because of their rock and roll lifestyle? Or yeah, well, what was it about? It was, hey, they had all kinds of reasons they got fired. <laughs> um, but oddly enough, oddly enough to like just jump for a minute, uh, fast forward to here, one of my best friends at that station was uh, Sid Davidson, who was known as, on the station as Dave Diamond, and he was from South Dakota. His father was a, I think he worked for not McGovern, but the Democrat before that. Knipe? Knipe. Yeah. He was a press guy for Knipe, and he owned a newspaper in, I think, Huron or something like that. Anyway, he was into that whole thing. And he and I were just like, you know, two peas in the pod. He was the guy that uh, introduced me to the Playboy Club, you know, because yeah. he he knew all the bunnies and he'd have parties after his after they got off work and you know so it was like that kind of wild life with him, uh, but he was from South South Dakota. So anyway, going back to that time, uh, I learned from from being in the news media. It allowed me to have conversations with people and basically get a you know when you're doing uh, specials you can basically get a college education 
in about two or three hours. Yeah, and get paid for it. And get paid for it. You know, <laughs> Be, you know one of the, the examples I like to use is in doing one of the documentaries. I was doing a documentary on NASA. I spent a week at NASA. You know, it like looking at all of the different things, the experiments they were doing, and people showing me why they're doing this experiment and why they're doing that experiment. And I just go and do a nine to five at NASA for a week. And I learned all this like incredible stuff about the space program and, and experiments that they were doing. For example, you know, the memory foam in the 60s. They were doing memory foam experiments in NASA. And the guy said, one day this will be in your beds. <laughs> he said, but what we're doing, the reason we're doing experiments on it is because at some point we need to send astronauts into space and we'll have to put them to sleep for long periods of time. And so we're doing the experiments to find like, well, what? how can we have these guys asleep but they don't have bed sores, you know? Right, from Box Springs? From Box Springs or whatever. So at any rate, what was impressive was they had all of these people laying on these things with different, like, formulas for the foam. And they basically they were, like, seeing, well, how long could you lay in this one position before you start getting bed sore? <laughs> so you had all of these different guys, and they were... He said they were being paid to like, yeah. you know, as, as guinea <laughs> to pigs. sleep. <laughs> yeah, to be just sort of, like, lay there in bed. And uh, until you got a bed sore, <laughs> you know, it's like, you mean that's a job? Yeah. Well, today with smartphones, somebody could lay on their back for weeks at a time. And, and not even know. Yeah. <laughs> People are right now. <laughs> so you were able to see the future right in front of you there at NASA. Exactly. At that time, I didn't realize how privileged I was. You know, it was like a job. And I was trying to do, you know, they gave me the freedom to like just pick a subject and go do do a documentary on it. I mean, you don't I'm fast forwarding through this stuff. They don't start you there, but but I was I was for fast track for sure. Not only things like that, but you know, sitting down and having a you know, one hour conversation with the Secretary of Defense and then 2 days later sitting on a park bench talking to homeless people and finding out, you know, what their lives are like all over the place talking with, you know, uh, street kids who are trying to run the pimps out of their neighborhood, all over the map. That was my education. I never could have gotten an education like that at going to college. No. And what, what period of time was this? What, what This was in the 60s. I graduated in uh, 1966. And so, you know, a period of time between 66, 70, 72. Call me crazy, but if you're not in college, you could have been drafted. Well, I could have been drafted, but I, I was one of those people that – uh, even, you know, even as a radio, I could have been drafted, but they didn't draft me. And they sent me a letter that basically said that I was psychologically, un <laughs> <laughs> I was crazy, basically. Yes. And they didn't want You have psychological bone spurs. Yeah, 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 psychological bone spurs. But what I found out later is that around the time that I would have been drafted, they were ha they were in the Vietnam War. And they were having a lot of problems with people fragging their officers. So apparently they thought, this is not a guy you can piss off. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not a guy that's going to, like, you know, punch you in the face. No, he's a guy that will frag you. So don't <laughs> don't draft him. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we could find another guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, 
I don't they didn't send me an official letter saying that, but in discussions it you know the kind he of knew what was going on well yeah in the discussions it's kind of like oh you got that kind of forever well this is the discussion that was you know <laughs> because I was like I was an honor roll student in college so you couldn't I couldn't like fake it would be hard to fake that hey this guy's he doesn't know, got it yeah, yeah he, he isn't incompetent <laughs> so I think okay what well, you know I mean I wasn't complaining of nothing right you know, but anyway that was. <laughs> I didn't go back and say, hey, no, no, I insist. <laughs> in fact, I know the officer I'm going to frag. <laughs> let me in. Let me in. <laughs> Where is he? Yeah, cause uh, I, and actually, I had graduated as a captain in the ROTC in high school. Oh, so you should have been a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I could have walked right in and actually had a, a non-commissioned, like a you know, like, not a second lieutenant, I would have been uh, because it, that was when you go to college. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I would have been a corporal. In other words, I enlist as a corporal already. Yeah, yeah. you know, so skip a few steps. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then you'll be fast tracked too. And if you wanted to go to officer school after you were there for X number, you know, then they would send you to officer school, or you could go to ROTC in college and then get out and be an officer. Yeah. So you had all of these pathways, and you know, I was you know one of the you know. Officers, so to speak. Well, that seems like a kind of a common thread for you, though, is you you identify all these pathways that a lot of other people say, "There, I'm following a path. Why do I get distracted by all these other paths that are out there?" <laughs> you look at all these other things and say, "Well, I could do that." Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know. <laughs> uh, so you had a show called "Can You Dig It?" Larry Diggs, if That's I right, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was uh, that? Okay, so you know they. You know, at first I was doing like, uh, you know, cub reporting. You go out, you do a story, do an interview. And radio is pretty simple because you don't have that much time, so you don't have to know much, you know. Yeah, right, because <laughs> there's always going to be the news coming up. There's always – got to read that's the call right. letters. There's That's right. Yeah. I mean, you always like – if you the more you know about the story, the more like more likely it is that you will ask a relevant question that nobody else thought to ask. So that happens sometimes too. But you really aren't under – in that scenario, you aren't under the real gun to go in depth because you don't yeah. have time for it. You got that's a right. 30 second story, that's a long story on top 40. Radio. Yeah, it's like if you watch one of those late night TV shows, they have a 10 minute segment, which means hopefully your guest can tell me one good story. Exactly. That's all we got exactly. time for. Exactly. So then, so after a while, I made it known that I was interested in doing, you know, deeper in depth stories and another station hearing that. They actually hired me away to do that. So I then that's when they allowed me to have my own program, basically. Uh, again, I had no idea at that time that you know, hey, this how special that situation yeah. was. You know, yeah, because starting a, a show today is well, in a lot of ways, it's a lot simpler. Like I can say, yeah, I yeah. started a show. Here's my board, and I'm ready to record. Back then, that's right. You and you probably a- have more listeners than a lot of stations. <laughs> did at that Maybe time. I don't know. But the <laughs> but back then, you'd have had to you know producers, you have engineers, you have all these other people that have to be involved. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the the, the joke was the one way you can shut down a station is go touch a microphone. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then the, 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 the electrician's union would like shut that place down, man. Don't touch, don't touch no buttons in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have, uh, as I kind of expected, this is flowing a little easier than, than it does with many other guests. You and I can have these three hour conversations, but I want to take a break and we got to figure out 
how you got to Roslyn, South Dakota. We'll be back with Lawrence Diggs. The presenting sponsor of The Landard is Ben's Brewing Company. We are a brewery, tap room, and speakeasy located in Yankton, South Dakota. Our beers are on tap in several South Dakota cities. Visit us online at bensbrewing.com. Good people drink Ben's beer. Hey, Lanyard listeners, it's Brennan and Mandy from Boston Shoes to Boots. Do me a favor and think of something you will not buy generic. For instance, I will not buy generic toilet paper. First of all, ouch. Second of all, they don't tear at the seams. Brennan, what's your example? I will not buy generic mac and cheese. It's not as creamy. They say it is the same, but it's not. Same goes for shoes. Now, we all know how easy it is to buy shoes or boots from big box stores, big online sellers, or a boutique. But are you really getting the quality and customer service that your feet deserve? A proper fit and quality made shoe can go for miles for your feet and your overall health. Wearing shoes too small or large can have long-term consequences. And those shoes that are cute but make your feet hurt all night? Not worth it especially when you're covering up the blisters the next day. Our staff at Boston Shoes to Boots is trained to measure your foot length, arch, and width. Do yourself a favor and invest in your feet by getting properly fitted into a quality pair of shoes. We don't carry cheap because we care. That's right. Quality only hurts once. And trust me, we've seen plenty of scary toes that have been crammed in bad footwear for too long. Many times the effects are not reversible. So invest in your feet, take care of yourself, and go on your next adventure with a great pair of shoes from Boston Shoes to Boots, your footwear experts since 1915. Stop by and see us in the Meridian District in downtown Yankton or see us online at bostonshoestoboots.com. We are back with Lawrence Diggs. Before the break, we were talking about Pirate Radio, we were talking about San Francisco, and I thought maybe before the break we would get ourselves somehow to Roslyn, South Dakota, but we haven't gotten there yet. How did you find your way to Roslyn, South Dakota? Okay. I was, um, I had been looking for a uh, home away from home. So I, we, we talked about being in radio. One of the downsides of being a, in air quotes, radio personality is that the public thinks that they own you. In other words, you're a person, and so because you're on the air and they're one of your listeners, that when you go and to sit down to have dinner and you're sitting there trying to hit on this chick and you know see if you could take her home or whatever, and they feel like they have a right to come and sit down at your table and start talking to you, you know, because for them, you're always on, right? Well, we always hear, you know, <laughs> complain about that all the way to the bank celebrity yeah exactly so it was a complaint for me because at that time i have been out of radio for 10 years oh <laughs> <laughs> and people still was you yeah. know and so i thought well, okay well i need to be in a place where i can like uh just be me because here i'm the guy on radio i'm not you know and even though i had been out of the business for years you know, uh, you still got you still got a lot of that. Yeah. You know, so I thought, well, you know, what can I do to like? And I actually I'd been in, uh, you know, been a paramedic and travel around and stuff like that. But there was still this sort of 
of legacy. Kind of like when I went to Japan, I had a, a, a TV show in Japan, and I left for about three or four years. And when I came back, people thought that I had never left because they had been watching the reruns. Oh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they were syndicated. Was, yeah, they, they thought I was still there. Yeah. But at any rate, it kind of has this, this, this thing that follows you around. So I thought, well, there should be some place where I can just like chill out. So, you know, like to write, you know, you want to write and, and just be completely like off the grid. Anyway, I wanted a place where I could just go have everything set up and stuff. So I thought, well, and let me just go buy another place. It's kind of like a summer house. So I had been looking for about three, four years, uh, you know, Rio Grande in Texas because my father was down there. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something down there, Four Corners, because I'd heard that there's stuff, you know, with, you know, interesting properties, sort of isolated. Idaho, Oregon, all those kind of places. But there was always something, you know, either they had water rights issues or they had like Theodore Kaczynski's like peppered around all yeah. over. And or like, you you know, if you left your house, you know, you come back and, and there's been an axe murder you <laughs> done there or something, you know, because there's some way out people out in the Still places. some Wild West? Oh, yeah. Wilder than the Wild West, you know. They, <laughs> they need some Thorazine out there. <laughs> so, at any rate, I was intent or, you know, I, I, I wanted to have this place that I could just go set up, do some writing, uh, and just kind of chill out. So I'd been looking. One day, the uh, real estate agent called me, and he said, hey, I think, you know, because I've been looking in through real estate agents that I had, like, uh, around the country, like, contacting and saying, hey, I'm looking for this. If you find something like that, here's my criteria. Give me a call. Okay. So one day, this call, the guy said, hey, you know, I got this place. You need to check that out. You know, it's probably not going to be on the market very long, even though it's actually had been on the market for four years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so, so he said, like, it's in South Dakota, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, I heard of that. <laughs> it's out, it's out in the Midwest somewhere, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So he said, well, uh, it's a little town. He said, there's not really an airport or anything to it. So, you know, uh, if you can find your way there, here's the guy's name, who's the agent handling it. And go talk to him, and he'll, you know, make all the arrangement. So I showed up, and the guy, he said, I'm going to a meeting right now, so I can't really, you know, I, I can't stop this meeting and go with you. But here's the keys. It's cool. Just go up there. Take a look at the place. And if you're interested, come back, and we can continue this conversation. If that, you know, But if you're not, then, you know, case closed. Is this in Roslyn? In Roslyn. So but the guy I met was in Webster. Okay. Where did you fly into? Well, I flew into uh, Aberdeen. Okay. I flew into Aberdeen and uh, rented a car, went to Webster, and he told me, you know, where to go. So anyway, I get up there, and I go in the house and, you know, look around. And, you know, so I come outside, to, and I'm looking, and the guy who was my neighbor at that time, he's, he came up to me, and he said, hey, you know, are you going to buy this house? And I'm thinking, Okay, what do you mean? You know why? You know, because uh, I'm not used to that. You know, it's like so. He said, "Oh, you're going to buy this house," and I said, "Well, I don't know. I, I haven't decided yet. I'm just checking it out. You know, I might, might not." And so he said, "Well, the people who were living there before they left in kind of a hurry." He said, "Probably he's got all kind of junk in there." 
that's my pickup. If you want to use it, you, you know, just use it. Just let the wife know that you're taking it, so she know the kids are. Missing. Keys are in the car. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and and he hadn't even asked me my name. Yeah, I'd never had an experience like that. Never had an experience. Incredible. Like that. Yeah, and from that just kind of like set the pace of like how people treated me, like I had been there all my life. So I figured, well, you know. I might find some place. I might find some place that's good, but I can't think of what else I would want that's better. You know, it's it's near a fire hydrant, so the insurance companies are happy. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's it's and of course the place was cheap because it's been on the market for four years. Yeah, I mean, they can, take can whatever. You give me an idea of what a house like that was going for back in the day. Oh God, this was probably in the eighties, nineties. Uh, no, eighty nine. Well, almost nine. Okay, God. Um, fifteen hundred bucks, you know, fifteen hundred dollars yeah, to yeah. get a house in yeah. Roslyn back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that said, you know, it, it as most things, it's not that clean. You needed to put in about twenty grand to sure. make it livable, right? But still, you know, I mean, so compared was, to San Francisco, compared to San Francisco, <laughs> that was like two months rent. Yeah. You know? So the the thing that was important about the price is that if it didn't work out. I didn't have no problem walking away from it. Right. You know, I just say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll live here for a while, see if it all settles out, if I feel right. You know, am I feeling like I'm too, you know, I had this dream. Now that I'm in this dream, is it a dream or a nightmare? You know, let's see. But if it if it turned out that, hey, that wasn't going to be a thing, I'd have no problem with just like basically putting it back on the market, yeah. you know, but walking away from it. You yes. know, and if it got sold for taxes or something like that, I'd never you know, look back. You that know. was a fifteen hundred dollar experiment. <laughs> exactly. And it was a nice well, if I lived there for two months, it was like <laughs> free. <laughs> free. <laughs> <laughs> now, time of year that you were up there, speaking of hypothermia, uh were you <laughs> were you visiting this house and making your decision in the summer or in the winter? Summer. It was a summer. So I didn't know about the winters, and there would have been nothing anybody could have told me that would have prepared you, yeah, prepared yeah, no me, doubt. or just given me some kind of accurate idea. <laughs> because more than the, I mean, if somebody says to me, "It's forty degrees," or if they say it's minus forty, it's the same temperature to me. It's, it's cold. cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cold. You know, it's like it's like if you look at your carpet and say. How many threads are in this carpet? Just say a lot. Yeah. You know? so just like, <laughs> more than I can count. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or more than I'm going to count. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I remember about you living or your early days in Roslyn, at some point, you created your own address. You, you didn't have oh. a street sign. And okay. So, so that, that was at the beginning, really. So uh, when I left San Francisco... Computers, you know, I had a, I had had a Mac Plus, so that takes you back a while. And they were just coming out with the Mac, okay, so moving into that whole Mac. So I ordered one of those, and I said, okay, this is going to be my writing thing. I'm going to have set up my whole writing thing up there. Costs as much as your house. Exactly. <laughs> More. Because <laughs> I had all of this other stuff. Uh, back then, you had like a dial-up modem. Beep, 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 So at any rate, I... I uh, I ordered all that stuff before I left San Francisco, went to the Apple shop and just sort of sat down, spent hours like, you know, getting my whole setup of everything I was going to do. Got everything packed, you know, decided. 
And so he said, okay, we'll ship it out to you because I was leaving. And I figured, well, why am I going to take this in a car when he yeah. says, ship it out? And I got my car full of stuff anyway. And it wasn't ready yet. You know, they had to get stuff and put it all together. So I said, okay, cool. Uh, soon I, so he said, well, where do you want to send it? So I gave him the address of the place. And after two or three weeks, ain't no computer. What? So I called him up and said, what's your, oh, glad you called, man. We didn't have your number out there because I didn't have a telephone number. He said, we, we can't, I had a P.O. box because in my street, they didn't have delivery. They, you have to go to the post office box. Even though the, the mailman goes past my house, he's not on the route. They, he's the rural route. And yeah. so on the way out of town, he delivers people's mail. But if it's not on the road out of town, you got to go to the post office in my address was one of those that you had to go to the post. Yeah, three blocks away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not even that. Yeah. About a block and a half. So anyway, he, he said, okay, we you gave us a post office box. We're sending a UPS. They won't take post office box. You got to give us a an actual address. And I said, hey, man, I don't have an address. Because they actually didn't. We Years later, we, we did this, uh, one of the uh, community groups that I was working with, we for the emergency medical emergency services, we came up with an address system. But at that time, they had street names, but we didn't have no address. You could whatever address you want to be, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Put one on there, you know. You're Second good. house on the right. That's right. It's, it's Frank's house. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I'm trying to explain to this guy. I said, look, man, in this town, there is no addresses. We have PO boxes, you know. And the guy said, well, I don't know how we're going to work this out. You got to have, I said, well, isn't there like a landmark or something, you know, like the, the so-and-so building or something, you know, I don't know what, how they work. And he said, but they said that they would take a landmark. So I said, well, just say the black guy at Roslyn. <laughs> <laughs> and they put that on there and I got it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I got, I got the, the, the thing. And the guy, he was like, really kind of like a little bit embarrassed when he knocked on the door and he said, well, I got this uh, package. Are you the black guy in Roslyn? <laughs> you were a landmark. I became a landmark. <laughs> and then eventually at some point you create this vinegar museum and maybe, maybe you should start off with your expertise in vinegar and how this gets us to a museum and, and why you did it there. Okay. So while I was doing my, uh, some work in West Africa with, uh, you know, the setting up an emergency medical service. One of the things I noticed, Ben, was the people got sick mostly, uh, mostly because they ate wrong. You know, I mean, other than accidents and stuff like that. But they had diarrhea. They had, they had water issues. Well, even, even their, you know, heart attacks and stuff like that. And I start thinking about even in the U.S., you know, most of it's, it's like we just eat bad. We have all this access to, what could be decent food, but between the manufacturing process and just what people are attracted to or what culturally they always ate or whatever, they they eat stuff that the body just sort of puts up with and manage to go along, but it's not the best. And especially I could see that, you know, sometimes when you're in your own place, you don't see stuff. You go to another place and you see those people doing it and you say, look at those dummies. Oh, yeah, 
I guess I would tell me too. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I'm doing. You yeah. know? So one of the things I noticed, for example, is like those people, they were growing tomatoes, but you go to the market and people were selling like this powder, this tomato powder. And that tomato powder had all kinds of stuff in it to, as fillers and stuff like that because – you grow the tomatoes and you sell the tomatoes for the rich to the rich people, and then you eat the crap, you know. So, at any rate, so I got you know. The more I thought about that, the more I thought, you know, and people are kind of poor too because they pay they overpay for something like mayonnaise or or mustard or something like these are easy things to make. So I became as I thought about that more and more, I became more interested in food science and like, well, how can I reverse engineer various sauces and stuff like that so that poor people can make them by themselves or like, okay, if I got, you know, four or five friends, well, you always make the mustard, you always make the mayonnaise, you always make the ketchup, we teach each other, and then when I need mustard, you got a whole gallon, and and it's a special mustard that ain't nowhere else. If I got a barbie, if I know how to make a barbecue sauce and I make the barbecue sauce, we don't buy barbecue sauce at the grocery store. We buy, we just trade it with each other Yes. because I'm helping you, you're helping me, we're friends. And it's not even about the money. It's about like that bonds us because we're making, that was my kind of dream thing of doing the of food. So, so I decided, okay, well, I'll go back to college and learn some more stuff about food science and and how this is done so that I can not only show people the mechanics of how to do it, but understand the food science too, because I realize too that most people, like you say, science, and then their eyes glaze over, their ears plug up, and their heart stops beating, or so just say that word, you know, <laughs> and they shut down. So I thought, okay, let me learn about the food science part, and then I can have a discussion or just do it, and then people will see how it's done, and uh, and maybe I can like make convert some people, and then they can convert some people into a ripple effect. So that was my grand scheme. Well, along the way, I realized that one, all most of the things, not all, but most of the things that I was talking about, the one common denominator, common denominator they had was vinegar. All these things we're using. So that was like in the back of my mind, but it wasn't the thing that got me started. But I, it was in the back of my mind, oh, that's interesting. Like all this stuff, bread, cheese, mustard, mayonnaise, candy, all kinds of stuff had vinegar in it. Or sometimes they would call it acetic acid or ethanoic acid, but that's just to throw you off. It's just vinegar. So it uh, came time to do, in one of my classes, one of the food science classes, we had to do this paper. And you could choose whatever thing you wanted to write on, but you know, and what do you want? What you wanted to write on, write about on that thing. So, as I'm looking through all of the potential things, there, it, it occurred to me that you know you don't want to write about a subject that the teacher feels like some expertise. In, oh, yeah, you know, because if they do. Then they're going to be really critical their, of your their paper. Their BS meter is going to be way up, way up, and they and they're going to be tweaking and like you, you know, all your grammar has to be right because they're going to be nitpicking your yeah. thing. You know, if nothing else to show their. Yeah, if you came to me and started writing about brewing, I would be like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, exactly. Good job, yeah. noob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I'll be looking for some way to show you that you're wrong. You yes. Know? Okay, so 
uh, I realized, okay, well, I'm going to have to write something else. And also, I was like, okay, bread making, that's boring. I don't drink, so I don't want to do wine, you know, I, I, you know. Uh, Cheese, I, I don't really like soft cheese that much. And whatever I write on, I'm going to have to do some experiments on it because that's part of the, the deal, right? So I decided, oh, there is a vinegar thing, you know. And so I went to the library and I said, hey, you know, like, well, uh, well, first I went to the card catalog because back in the day, that's what you did. So I went to the card catalog. There wasn't one, but I couldn't find any books. So I thought, on vinegar. So I went to the asking I said hey you know can you help me find a book on vinegar and they said what do you mean just go in the card library and look under the V's I said I did man there ain't no book in there and they said nah come on they went over they couldn't find one book in the whole incredible library. so every everybody's grandma is cleaning with vinegar vinegar is like a commodity that's everywhere and there's no, no reference book. points to it no it gets deeper at this time, they didn't have Google and all of that. But they did have, the libraries had these databases that they shared. And there were four databases in the English language that was the major ones that the libraries shared between them internationally, every place that was an English-speaking country. They did searches on all of those databases, and they couldn't find one book. <laughs> you know? And and I should I should, I, I should uh, uh, say also one book that was in print. Now, at some time, somebody had written a book, but it was like maybe 100 years before. It wasn't in print, and it wasn't available. They couldn't find a copy that they could, you know. I think the, the thought was, look, that book has to be, well, we could find it in the Library of Congress, so we knew it, it had been a thing, okay. But we couldn't find copies of it. Long story short, uh, I had been an investigative reporter, so I knew how to do research. I decided, well, this is just too intriguing. And it just became like a rabbit hole. A Obsession. Neurosis. Yeah, yeah, a neurosis, obsession. <laughs> you know? So at, at some point, I had like four like Apple boxes full of material on vinegar that these librarians have been ordering. This article, that article. I said, I just want to know everything there is. And I'd spend hours and hours in the library reading this material and, and gathering stuff. And one day, the librarian said, you know, I hope you're going to write a book on this because somebody else is going to come in here and ask us for a book on vinegar, <laughs> yeah. and we don't want to do this right. again. <laughs> so This has been quite an experience. Exactly. And they said, at least write a bibliography. Yeah. Because, and so... Well, in the process of doing not only the book research, but I was a, I was I have always been big on primary sources. So I have been contacting other people who have been doing research in in companies and in uh, homebrew things. All of that I have been work, you know, like talking to people, and I had gotten to know the guy who is the president of the Homebrewers Association because he lived just across the bay. Okay, so and he had a store. And so when they, when the library asked me about that, I said, I went to him and I said, well, do you think there's a book? And he said, man, if you wrote a book on vinegar, I could sell one, two or three every day. So because people always coming here asking me for a book on vinegar, but there is nothing. Long story short, I ended up writing the book that didn't exist. And you ask people enough questions and pretty soon they ask you questions. So what happened is out of that 
became – out of that came a business of being a vinegar consultant. In yes. Quotes. Because, uh, well, for example, recently uh, – You became the database for vinegar. I became the database. Uh, kind of almost like a default because it was just nobody had yeah. – that, you know, that, that ball was laying on the ground. I picked it up and started playing with it, you know. And you branded it, yeah, yeah. the Vinegar Man. Exactly. So exactly. you got him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was the, the black guy in Roslyn. Yeah, yeah, but now I'm the Vinegar Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at any rate, that, that's, you know, that gave me that sort of place in the world. And it's still today, that's my, let's say, cash flow item. Right. That's the thing that gets you to many countries around the world as a paid consultant. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So 20 years ago. We were doing some economic development stuff in the region. And I was going, you know, the nice thing about being like a consultant and a vinegar consultant is most of the stuff you do is on the phone, internet, or, you know, type of letter. But every once in a while you need to go someplace. But pretty much you have a flexible schedule. So more than other people, I was positioned to go to all of these different meetings. Uh, And the thing that prompted me to get involved in it is because I discovered a curious thing is that the people in my neighborhood or the people in my towns and the towns around them, they were getting the same kind of jive that people were getting in the inner cities 20 years ago. The government come in and say, oh, we got this great grant. We're doing this for you. We're going to do this for you after people protest and stuff. They say, oh, we're going to get this program going. They give them just enough to fail. Yeah, and there's no way to show deliverables because nobody's ever done this before. Exactly. And so not then only the that, budget's going to be cut because nobody delivered. Exactly. And, and, and they wouldn't know if you delivered. They still wouldn't know if they got their money's worth because they didn't know what they were asking for. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you say, okay, I'm a, it's like those, those uh, TV programs where you pay money and then you get the you get the abandoned uh, storage oh, locker. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you don't know what's in storage it. Storage wars. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Right, that's right. You don't know what's <laughs> in it. So you know, is it a good deal? You don't know until you open it up. Right. And even if there's one box, there could be something, one thing in that one box, you know. Or you could have a whole thing full of old newspapers, but they're only two years old. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, but you paid your money. You yeah. Know, so you don't know. The government is in a you know a case like that, and it's only the government that I discovered that is only the government that's pretty much going to do greenfield research. Everybody else wants the government to pay for the re- greenfield, the hard stuff, greenfield research where all kind of you got to kiss a lot of princesses before you get you know a lot of frogs before you get to a princess. The government pays for all of that. But then when somebody discovers something, the government dis- discovers something, now you give these out this corporation for virtually free. Yes. And they say, well, we, we made this. You know, it's our, <laughs> it's our, uh, it's our Intellectual drug. property. You cannot have <laughs> yeah, it now. Have that. Yeah, even exactly. though it was a public good at one <laughs> exactly, point. Yeah. Exactly. So at any rate, I saw all of this kind of thing happening. I saw how the farmers were getting taken advantage of, even when they thought they were getting a big, a, a good deal. You could see how the trade set up, you know, for somebody who's going around the world. And, you know, for example, one of the things I notice is just at coffee, people would talk about how they their cattle was being docked for having too much fat, right? And what they didn't tell them is that they take that same cattle that they docked you for, sell it in Japan, and it's premium because it's marbled. Yes. Right? And you think— 
That's not fair. Not to mention they sell it by the pound, right? That's right. Not to mention the whole outfall thing where, you know, like most guys who are growing cattle don't know that the outfall is worth more than the meat because of what they're going to do for it. So they'll give away the outfall, for example, to have their cow slaughtered, but they don't realize it's just going in that cow's ear and cutting off. There's a little thing that looks like a, 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 some hairs that all come together. Those are prized brushes in Asian countries for painting. Uh, and they don't know that. Yeah. You know, so what you think is garbage in another place is gold. I, I did some trading on in uh, cow lungs, and there was like two people in Minnesota that were, you know, like the people who, like they tried to gather up all the cow lungs possible, and they had markets for those. For you, that cow lung is, a, is garbage because, no, we don't eat that. Right. Yeah. But for some place else, that's a delicacy. Right. Absolutely. So what I'm saying is, like, when you see that kind of thing happening, and you realize, oh, you know, my neighbors are getting up in the middle of the night in a snowstorm to make sure that this cow lives. He's got to go through all of that. He's got to take all the risk, and then somebody else comes along and takes the profit at a higher rate than he gets. That just seems that just seems unfair to me. And so I think it was that kind of motivation that motivated, you know, just that sense of unfairness that made that motivated me to like say, well, either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution, Diggs. These guys, they haven't seen what you've seen. They haven't, you know, they haven't had the privilege that you have to see how the world works in other places and how their products get transformed. What are their options? They're so busy just trying to keep the cow alive that they don't really understand where yeah. they fit in the marketplace. If something's going to happen, you're at least going to be part of it. You're not going to be the whole thing, but you got to do something. Otherwise, what kind of person are you? What kind of person are you that you wake up and you go to coffee with guys and you hear them talk about their struggles? You know that you may not have the whole solution, but you could do something, but you're not doing that. How do you live with yourself? You know, so... I kind of didn't have a choice, you know, if I wanted to. And I live with myself 24-7. So if I'm going to live with myself and I hear that little voice in my head all the time, I have to do something, you know. So anyway, I got involved in their economic development stuff. and I was at some of those early meetings yeah, back yeah. when they were meeting in the fire hall. Exactly. It was like the, the one new building in Roslyn that was the fire hall. Exactly. And we had community meetings there and – Exactly. It wasn't too long. We moved to a different building for some of those. Exactly. Exactly. So it was that kind of thing that we did for a couple of years, but we were not making progress. And so I just said, hey, look, you know, I've been to a lot of meetings, and these guys give you this plan of like, okay, you guys do this. Like take a survey of what people want in the town, uh, do an assessment of how many people you have to work, and do all of these things. We did virtually all of them, Ben, we did nothing. Nothing was moving the needle. So I just say, well, you know, all these people that's been making all these fancy speeches, I'm going to invite them all to a meeting here, and we're going to hear what they have to say. We're going to make a presentation to them and say, hey, we did everything you guys asked us to do. Now tell us, you know, what's missing because we're ready to move now. We got people been move, coming to regular meetings two years it's unfair to ask these people to come all of these meetings almost weekly sometimes 
and they put their heart and soul. Teachers were doing it. Kids were like participating. We, I mean, we had like really good community participation, right? But nothing's moving. So I said, well, okay, well, you know, you guys need to tell us what is it about this. So we made our little presentation, told them all the things we we're doing, our PowerPoint presentation, and everything. And then, I mean, this was a long table. We got university professors, bankers, you know, uh, people from, you know, the government, the governor's office of economic development, all of these guys. And at the end, they said, you know, they're listening and there was a silence, you know, and then they said, well, look, we appreciate everything you guys are doing. I'm summing up because a lot of people were speaking, but they said, we appreciate more or less what you guys have done, but Microsoft is not going to come to your town. You guys don't have anything to give them. And so a company's not going to come to your town without something to give us. And my response was, that's not what you told us at these meetings. That is not what you said at the meetings. You are telling us, like, if you do all of these things, more or less keep your nose clean and keep your nose to the grindstone, kid, do all of this stuff. Follow the plan. Follow the plan, and the plan will treat you right. The plan is not treating us right. You never mention that if you don't have something to give, if you don't have a football stadium to build, you can't build a football stadium, no team's going to come to your town. Right? If you don't have like a free land and free this and everything else, if you don't have that, give up and die because nobody's going to come to your town. We, the plan that we have developed and the people that we play golf with, they don't care about towns like yours. They never come in here. Nobody ever said that in all these meetings. And what was really sickening is there were, when I had gone to meetings, there were hundreds of the little towns like ours that they were giving this garbage to, but nobody, it was never going to work for them. Yes. That was just, that just, and it brought back so much pain of like what had happened in the inner city. That's exactly the kind of thing that happened. There's truly no hope, even after you do all the right things. Not doing what they said. Exactly. Not doing what they said, because their plan is not meant for you. Their plan is meant to destroy you, not to help you. They want you to go away, you know? So the last thing the guy said is say, well, you know, if, you know, something were to happen, you know, given the situation, it's going to be something from your town, and you're going to have to do something that nobody, no, the bigger towns can't do because if they can, they will come in with their bigger budgets and stuff and eat your lunch and you, you know, nobody will ever know it was your idea. Some unique position that you have to have that you can do something in your town that can make something happen. That's the only way we could see it, you know, from our vantage point. And so, and so they said, well, you know, what do you have that's unique in your town? And all these eyes looked at me. <laughs> he does vinegar. <laughs> we do corn and, yeah. and beans. The same and as beef. every other town. Yeah, in this corn, region. beans, and beef, and uh, you know, a convenience store. That's what yeah. we, you know. <laughs> now I'm feeling like okay, I've been like giving this <laughs> rah rah speech of like we got to think out of the box and do all of this, and I'm thinking okay, I can't say that. Hey, look, I got a business now. And my business model doesn't include a whole town. I've never thought about a business where I'm a I consultant. To, I'm a consultant. I'm mobile. Man. I'm mobile. We. I don't do things. I don't. You know. I don't have kids. I don't have a wife. I don't have all of those things that makes me sedentary. Homie, don't do that. 
That it, digs don't do it, yeah. you know. So, but I said, okay, look, you know, since I'm, I've been the one that's been like getting every telling you started everybody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I started it, but right. I was certainly one of the cheerleaders. Driver, right? I can't now turn. To, well, that's what you guys should do, but I shouldn't do it, right? I'm asking everybody else to make a sacrifice, but you know, and 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 put some work in and energy in. But I'm not doing it, right? So that didn't sound, that didn't feel right with me either. So I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I was actually out on my way out to Japan at that, at that, after that meeting. I said, I will think about it while I'm on the road. When I come back, I'll let you know. So the more I thought about it, you know, and I think about things kind of like I set up a, a science experiment. You know, I just said, okay, what, what are the resources that we have that I could do something with vinegar? Because and all I have to do is set an example. That's all. The, that's all I'm going to do here. I'm not going to build an empire because I don't need an empire. I'm not. I can't be the center of the thing because I already got my center. I already had my 15 minutes of fame. If I wanted to be famous and rich, I know how to do that. But I've decided to do. There's a more else. lucrative way to do that too. That's right. That's right. So I said, okay. Well, what can I? I I, I just thought about it. And I said, what are the resources we have? Well, one, we have. A motivated population, that's a critical key. Okay, so I got that to work with. You got people, you can get new ideas from them, you can get their cooperation. They have a network of people, even if they don't know it yet, they they all have something of a network of people. That's value that's value. I understand that as value. We got a building in town that is gonna fall down. It, it, it belongs to the city, it's in a strategic place. Uh, it might need some work, but it's we got a essentially venue. free, right? It, it, essentially free, and we got a venue uh, because the population is in favor of the thing. So, it, in a small town, it's just you go to a meeting or a coffee, and then it's done. You know, okay. So we got that, and I got a whole bunch of vinegar in my living room that people send me from around the world, saying, "Hey, what do you think about my vinegar? What do you think about my?" And then. I had written a book on vinegar, so I had all of these pictures and data and stuff like that. It's a summary of a book, really. Yeah. And so I said, but what is it that I lack? I have no idea about how to run a museum. I have no idea how to run a retail. Or to staff it yourself for every day of the year. Yeah, yeah. How is that going to work? So I said, okay. Well, long story short, I lined up. What I, what I had and what I lacked and what I lacked, how could I get that? One thing I know from research is if you dig long enough, pretty much everything that can be known will be known, you know, and, and there are people who know that. And if you're, if you're brazen enough to, to bug them about it and just say, hey, how do I find this out? Most of the time you can find out. If that person doesn't tell you, either they know somebody who knows or you can find somebody else who yes. will tell you. Yeah. So you just keep asking questions. And Sometimes you have to get started by just doing things and you interest people enough that they come along and they make comments that that was the answer that you need, but you didn't know. You got to start the experiments and then somebody else will come along and and take you. So anyway, the Vinegar Museum basically grew out of that. It became a, a, a SWOT analysis and you said, I suppose I better do this because <laughs> there's not enough reasons why not. That's right. I can't. It would be harder to walk away from it yeah. than, to, than to stick with it. So yeah. I, I, I often say to myself, 
I recreated my own hell, you know, because I was trying to <laughs> yeah. get away from right. like just be. But then, but you turned it over to the town. I, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was that was the plan from the yeah from the time that I thought of it. It's like, what's my exit strategy? Yes. You, you got them in, <laughs> and then you gave them ownership so that you could find a way out and still right. be a supporter. Exactly, exactly, and that's because I don't have a need for a vinegar. What I have a need is for my town and for the kids who come to my t- from my town to feel like we belong here. We have something. This is a thing that sets us apart. This is this can be something that's our identity. I mean, look, we, we had Myron Florin, but nobody there pretty much knew Myron Florin, and he's gone, and people didn't. I mean. Some of the old timers and maybe guys who are like forty or something that heard their grandma talking about it, but and and some of the older people they put up a sign or something yeah. like that. But you don't have anything that you can feel that you participated in. Yes, and that was something to create it right from the beginning. There were lots of people Anybody in the community can say that their hand and their their energy is in that building. Well, it certainly gave Rosalind something unique. And even today, when I talk about where I'm from, people are always saying, do you know the Vinegar Man? Have you been to the Vinegar Museum? It's like, interestingly enough, I do know him. I have been there many times. But how can people keep in touch with you or at least maybe see some of your work? Okay, so uh, I have a YouTube channel. uh, And uh, recently, uh, I'm, I'm starting a mail list. And so if people email me at public at ldigs.com, I'll... I'll uh, Digs with two Gs. Two, that's right. Digs, P-U-B-L-I-C at L-D-I-G-G-S dot com. If they email me there, then, and just uh, put in the um, subject line, just say MailChimp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> MailChimp list or something like that, or email list or something. Tell me who you want. Tell me where you heard it from, and then I'll I will send you a link where you can like opt in to to my mail list. I'm building a mail list uh, as my alternative to Facebook. Yeah, because I have a lot of different things that I want to aggregate. Everything from uh, recipes to uh, book suggestions to uh, questions. I like to like come up with questions that challenge people to think about things as opposed to tell you what you. You should think. Odd facts, if I find an interesting YouTube video, to make a link on that. But I want to have, like, that's that's kind of like something I'm trying now as a mail list for people who want to do that. Is like you'll get maybe like one or two pages of different things, but when you click on it, it kind of like accordions out in terms of like all these different pathways you can go. Uh, meetings, where if there's like meetings, if people... You know, especially in my circle, if you have uh, uh, something you're trying to do and people like you're doing an art show or something like that, tell me about the art show. Then I'll have like a listing of events or something like that. Kind of like a newsletter. Yeah. Uh, But uh, what I want to do is like stock it full of stuff, but then don't make it really hard to read to make it. You have to read through all of that to get you know, just kiss a few frogs before you get to the princess. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest can be in another chapter. Exactly. exactly. Well, it's always a pleasure to have these conversations with you, and we'll be doing it again and again over the years. 
But thanks for sharing your story with my listeners today. You bet. Thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Lanyard.